Brothers and sisters, I encourage you to uh, open your Bibles at page 828, uh, back to the reading from Lamentations, and then let me pray as we uh, come under God's Word together. <laughs> Lord our God, your Word is powerful, a double-edged sword and able to pierce to the core of our being. And we pray that as we come under these words, these words of grief and lament that express anguish and broken hearts, that you may indeed pierce our hearts, correct us, rebuke us, and train us in righteousness so that we may be wise for salvation in Christ. Amen. The TV cameras pan around the scene. It is almost silent, an eerie, a somber silence. And what we see, what we've seen dozens of times on our televisions in recent years, empty streets, wrecks of cars, bombed out buildings, burnt down buildings, may be still smoldering, wrecked army vehicles dotted along the streets. We've seen pictures of doors broken off their hinges, shattered windows, and bodies. Bodies lying in the streets, bodies unburied, bodies attracting flies, bodies left alone. What was once the busy streets of Baghdad or Damascus, Aleppo or Tripoli, or in years past Sarajevo and dozens of other cities around our world, empty, apparently God-forsaken and people abandoned. What was a center of activity, devoid of people entirely. And we could think in the last 20, 30, 40 years, depending on your age, of numerous places in virtually every continent of our world where those pictures we've seen, where cities, places have been destroyed by enemies, where lives are lost, where wreckage and carnage remains. The noise of a bustling city now eerily silent. We're used to those pictures. They enter our homes on television, on the internet, all the time. In recent weeks and months, the pictures, especially from Syria, from Aleppo, Homs, and Damascus, but also you know, Kabul and Baghdad and other places, sometimes we get a little bit immune to the suffering, to the trauma. We look on may be uninterested, disinterested. We look on sometimes thinking, I don't know where this place is. I've never heard of it before. It's outside my realm of knowledge and geography. But if it's a place we've been to, if it's a place where we know somebody who lives, then the emotional chords strike deeply. I have a friend who is a pastor in Aleppo 
a city that has been consistently besieged, bombed and attacked for months and months. And almost all of the Christian population is dead or have fled across to Lebanon. He remains. So when I hear of Aleppo, there is this added twinge of anxiety for my Syrian pastor, friend, colleague who's there. Imagine if it's your city, your home, your suburb, or your street. Imagine if it was the center of your universe. That may be hard to imagine. In 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. It was destroyed by the then world power of the day, Babylon. Babylon had only been the world power for about 30 years after it conquered Assyria in a sequence of battles destroying its key cities in the late 600s BC. Ten years before, Babylon had besieged Jerusalem, a siege that had lasted some time and led to the surrender of Jerusalem, but not its destruction. The city still stood, the temple still stood, the king was replaced, taken into exile, replaced by another, equally bad. But the city continued, a sort of puppet government under the Babylonians until it foolishly rebelled, and Nebuchadnezzar returned with greater force and greater vehemence. And after a siege of more than one year, a terrible siege, if the TV cameras were there, we would see scenes that would equal all the devastation and carnage that we've seen in recent years. Cannibalism by Israelites trying desperately to stay alive as their city remained besieged by the Babylonians. And then an empty city, devastated. Thousands taken into exile, the leaders, the priests, etc., and others left to fend for themselves. And from what history tells us, Jerusalem after the fall in 587 was a pretty pathetic place to be. The so-called capital was moved elsewhere. The city lay absolutely in ruins, desolate, underpopulated for decades to come. But this is not just any city. Yes, it was the home city of thousands of people, the home city of the writer of Lamentations. And therefore, there is an anguish that is personal and deep. But it's more than that. For Jerusalem was not simply an ancient equivalent of Kuala Lumpur or London or wherever else you may come from. It was more than that. It represented more than that because this was God's city. This was the city that the psalmist said would never fall. This is the city whose walls and rivers make glad the people of God. This was the city where God himself dwelt, the God of the universe, the creator God. Not limited to this city, still the God of heaven, but in a special and unique way, living in the most holy place of the glorious temple, this grand building that was the greatest building in the ancient world anywhere for one God alone. But it's gone, destroyed down to its foundations by Nebuchadnezzar. Some had fled in advance or escaped through the siege and 
gone off to Egypt to escape the Babylonians. And from what we know in history, they remained living there. Some kept the faith, some lost it, many compromised it. The Jews of later centuries from Egypt, many of them were sort of heretical in a way. Some of them took others by force, including the great prophet Jeremiah, unwilling to go to Egypt. Others killed, others left behind, others taken away to Babylon 1,500 or more kilometers away, the other side of the, the Arabian desert. The city of joy, the center of the whole earth as it was proclaimed by God's people earlier, is now nothing, nothing at all. And Lamentations laments its fall. Lamentations laments its destruction. This is a tear-jerking book. This is a gut-wrenching book. Heartbreaking language. It is sad, deeply sad. And if we are to glean from it as much as we can, we need to engage with its deep emotions. But more than that, Lamentations is obviously an expression of bereavement. It's an anguished cry of desolation. And yet it's not garbled. You may have met people, as I have dozens of times, who are in significant trauma of grief. People I've met over the years in pastoral ministry whose child has just been hit and killed by a car. Their son has just broken his neck in a diving accident. Their daughter has just been found overdosed and dead. That sort of trauma leads people to not be able to be articulate. Their words, if any, are all over the place, jumping, uh, lacking logic. But what yet we find in Lamentations, astonishingly in a way, is though it expresses deep pain of grief, it is also deeply ordered, structured, no doubt there is some longer-term reflection that has led to the structuring of this. So it combines the sort of outpouring of grief and yet a tight order. For example, you'll notice that each chapter has 22 or, in one case, 66 verses. In the Hebrew alphabet, there were 22 letters of the alphabet. And so for chapter 1, same for chapters 2 and 4, each verse, as we have it, begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now that's not hard to do. It's easy enough to find words to begin sentences. Making things rhyme is much harder, it seems to me. But on the other hand, whoever has expressed this has actually taken the time and thought so that verse A, verse 1, chapter 1 begins with the equivalent of the letter A and letter B and so on, all through the alphabet. So we have something that's very ordered. Some say that it might be a way of showing order, giving order for grief, maybe a sense of the A to Z of grief, although this is a particular grief. This is not any grief. This is a particular circumstance that is being expressed here. The whole book is written with a particular rhythm. Poet, it's poetry, obviously, and it's got its own funeral-type rhythm. We don't quite grasp the nature of rhythm and poetry, perhaps. But maybe a, a way of trying to get a sense of that is to read this book 
while you're playing Chopin's funeral march, for example. Da 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 da. Try and create the somber atmosphere that is what is expressed in the rhythm, the meter of a funeral type book, helping people engage emotionally, but more than that, helping people ultimately engage theologically. For what's God's word so often does in the Psalms, in the poetry here especially, is to express deep emotion, an outpouring of grief, and yet to do it in a way that invites us to use these words in some way as our own expression, as though it's by God's grace giving us words to say when we have no words to say, when we're speechless with grief. The first chapter that we're looking at today begins as though it's a TV camera panning across this scene of desolation. And it's expressing shock. It's a narrator, a commentator, if you like. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. Notice the sharp contrast from what was and what is. Full of people. Bustling with people. You know, like Book It Bin Tang on a Saturday, I suppose. Absolutely chock-a-block with people. But now empty. How lonely sits the city. How like a widow she's become, she who is great. She who is great, she being the city, now widowed. She was great among the nations. That is, famous among the nations, courted by the nations. The other nations looked up to her and so on. Now widowed. That is, left alone. They've abandoned her. Left all alone. She was a princess, but now a slave. Not literally, of course, but speaking of the city poetically, metaphorically. What a contrast from greatness to nothing expressed in those images of verse 1. Now, in effect, an empty ghost town, which apparently the inner city of Jerusalem was basically after the destruction by Babylon. And then we see something of the trauma of the grief. In verse 2, she weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. Well, the city, of course, literally doesn't cry. The people cry. The city's bereaved. And she had all these lovers. Now none of them comforts her. That's actually a barbed comment. Who were her lovers? For what Israel, Judah, had failed for decades was to trust in God. And instead, and especially in the last 20 or 30, yeah, 20 years before its fall, she had courted all the different political powers to try and secure her continuity. So in the 20 years before the destruction of Jerusalem, the leaders of Jerusalem had turned to Babylon, to Egypt, before that to Assyria, looking for desperately for some form of political security and future. They're her lovers. They were foolish lovers. They were wrong to even turn to them because God alone would be their refuge and their strength. But now the lovers aren't comforting her at all. There's an irony there, a barbed comment about their failure in the past looking for political solutions. 
and they've betrayed her. In fact, some of her allies had actually jumped alongside Babylon and helped Babylon or cheered from the grandstand as Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. They knew who the winning team was going to be. They were fickle supporters. They always tried to support the winning team. So Judah has gone into exile, verse 3. An exile that had been long predicted, even way back as far as Moses' day, in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. Something like 800 years before it actually happened. Exile, the idea of the leaders, not every person, but the leaders, priests, king, the, the, the rich people, the ones who might represent a threat to Babylon, they are taken away forcefully and relocated in Babylon. A bit like a detention center. It's not quite a prison. They seem to have had freedom to operate within that confine. The idea being that the Babylonian government could look down on them fairly carefully. And they're not at the far end of the empire where maybe they begin to plot their own rebellion. That was the Babylonian strategy for all the countries it conquered, not just for Judah as well. And so in verse 3, Judah's gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. And she dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The land of Canaan, the land of Judah, was meant to be its resting place. A place of rest with God, in harmony with God, a rest of security and protection from God. But no longer is that the case. Now in exile, living among the nations rather than distinct from them, Israel was meant to be distinct from other nations, both in its moral life and geographically, now no longer is the case, thrown in the midst of pagan people. Its whole purpose under God seems to have vanished, evaporated, and gone. And at the heart of all this, there is no one to comfort her. It's there in verse 2, in the middle, comes again in verses 9, 16, 17, 21, no one to comfort her. How bad is that? If you've gone through traumatic grief, you know how important it is to have comfort. You know how important it is to have people who are with you, people who ring you up, people who drop in food for you, people who just sit and care for you and love you and hold your hand. But for Jerusalem, their grief is compounded because there's no one to comfort them. And the sadness of that echo is not just no other nation to comfort them, but it seems not even God. That God doesn't comfort them in their grief. They are completely left alone, deserted by God, man, and friend. Grief is agonizing in the best of times, harder still, without comforters. In the place of the crowded pilgrimage streets of Jerusalem, empty, verse 4 says. In the place of the crowded marketplace, now quiet gateways. The gates are desolate. The place where business would be transacted, that's the gate. The place where people come and go. The place where people buy things, sell things. The place where legal decisions are made, all empty, all gone. Completely abandoned and desolate. Desolate. Her priests groan. There's no sacrifice because there's no temple for sacrifice. Many priests carted off into exile. They groan. 
And those that are left behind, they also groan as well. No more festivals to celebrate. No more rejoicing. No more singing. No more psalms of joy to sing. How can we worship the Lord in a strange land? How could we worship the Lord in a destroyed Jerusalem as well? And even the virgins have been afflicted at the end of verse 4. Maybe young women rather than strictly virgins. Maybe the women who were paid to lament, wail and grieve and cry at funerals. A liturgical role. And she herself, the city herself, a woman as it's portrayed in this metaphor, she herself suffers bitterly. The enemies prosper because of Jerusalem's fall. They've become the head, as it says in verse 5. But here comes a significant point theologically. Why? Why has this happened? Is it simply might is right? That Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar was so powerful that nobody could withstand him. And politically, historically, that seems to have been the case. Babylon was brutally powerful. It conquered everything in its path. And over the years of the Babylonian Empire, it just grew and grew in strength, conquering even Egypt to become the biggest empire in history to that point. All of the Middle East, into what we know as Turkey, down to Egypt, up into Iran and across towards India, all under Babylonian control. Brutally powerful. But that's not the ultimate reason for what's gone on here. And this is where this lament of grief gets it right. Why have the enemies prospered? Because, verse 5 says, the Lord has inflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. This is the narrator still grieving, and he's making this crucial comment. And this is where, what I said before, the distinctiveness of this context is important. This grief is because of their sin. And the Lord has afflicted her because of their sin. This is not unjust suffering. This is not suffering of persecution. This is not inexplicable, tragic, accidental grief. This is suffering brought on by God himself using pagan powers to destroy his own city because of their sin. So her children have gone away, led as captives, taken away mainly to Babylon itself. From the daughter of Zion, another name for Jerusalem in verse 6, all her majesty has departed. It doesn't mean the king, he's gone, that's his majesty. But all her majesty, all her glory has gone. The glorious things of the temple have been taken away, looted by Nebuchadnezzar's army. The majesty of a brilliant building destroyed into rubble. The majesty of the city completely destroyed. The majesty of the people, the majesty of God's presence, all gone. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They've fled without strength before the pursuer. In fact, that's true. The king at this time, planted there a decade before by Nebuchadnezzar himself, was Zedekiah. And at this point when Jerusalem fell, Zed fled. Captured at Jericho, eyes gouged out, killed by the Babylonians. Gone. And not just defeat, but to add insult to injury, mocked and humiliated. 
So Jerusalem remembers all of this in verse 7. But at the end of verse 7, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Can you imagine? Hard to imagine. But can you imagine in the devastation of some tragic grief, the loss of a loved one very dear to you, others just laugh at you? How painful that would be. How bitter that would be. The foes are mocking and laughing at the fall of Jerusalem. No one to comfort, but even worse, mockers all around. Now we know that there are many causes of suffering. Some suffering seems to be random, part of being in a fallen world. Some suffering we know from God is disciplinary. God sending us trials to discipline us to live righteous lives, to make us better Christians. Some suffering is persecution, something that we should expect because Christ attracted it and all of those who follow him should expect the same, he says. Some suffering is justifiable because we're idiots at times. We act idiotically and so we suffer, a justifiable suffering. And in one sense, that's the case here in Lamentations. This is not inexplicable suffering like Job, it's not persecution, really. It is God bringing punishment against his rebellious people and children. That's the case in Lamentations. So we can't simply say this book applies to any sort of suffering. This book is a warning to sinners under God of what God's judgment looks like and what it was like in 587 B.C., so in verse 8, Jerusalem sinned grievously and therefore she became filthy, unclean, impure in God's eyes. Not holy and righteous and clean, but filthy. And all who honored her despise her now, for they've seen her nakedness. That is, the sort of coverings of grandeur have been stripped away, left bare and naked, ashamed, an echo perhaps of the sin of Eden when the man and the woman, woman realized that they were naked and were ashamed. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. That may be an allusion to sexual sin, in which case the image of sexual sin is an idolatrous sin. It's an image used so frequently in Scripture where sexual sin is the model or the picture used to describe running after other gods and abandoning your faithfulness in the true God. And she took no thought of her future because she should have known. The word, the law given at Moses' day made it very clear that if you do not obey God's law, if you do not love God with all your heart, if you do not follow God's word, if you turn after idols and graven images, then exactly what has happened now in Jerusalem would happen. But she took no thought to her future. She thought she could keep on sinning with impunity, that is, without punishment. How often we think the same. How often our path is to sin and God's foot doesn't come down and squash us immediately. And we think, oh, maybe this is not so bad. Maybe I can do it again and again and again. And that was Israel's pattern. That was Judah's pattern. But God's patience runs out. That's the warning. And Judah didn't heed that warning. She didn't heed God's word from earlier centuries. 
And therefore her fall is terrible and she has no comforter again in verse 9. And just like on a TV documentary as we pan around this scene of desolation, we sometimes get this little audio clip of somebody speaking. A sound bite, my journalist sister calls it. And here it is at the end of verse 9. Here now is Jerusalem's own words. What we've seen is the camera panning around, the narrator's description of what is seen and why, and now comes just this sound bite from Jerusalem herself. O oh Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. A plaintive cry, a cry of grief. But then straight away we jump back to the narrator as he surveys this destroyed city. The enemy stretched out his hands over all her precious things. She's seen the nations enter her sanctuary and those whom you forbade to enter the congregation. For ancient Israel, the temple was the focus of worship. Not weekly worship, not like a church building, but especially the festivals and the Day of Atonement. It was the focus, the sort of, I guess in one sense, almost like a cathedral, but that's not quite the right image here because you come every week to a cathedral. But nonetheless... It was their focus. And to go into the courtyard, you had to be an Israelite or one who after some generations has joined the assembly of God's people. No foreigner was allowed in. But what's happened here in the destruction of the Jerusalem temple is the pagans, foreigners, who've got no worship of Yahweh have entered not only the courtyard, but into the holy place and the most holy place and taken away all the treasures, the ark, the gold, and so on. Those who were forbade have entered your congregation, have entered the sanctuary. It's been desecrated and also, of course, destroyed. And all her people groan as they search for bread and they trade treasures for food. How tragic is that? And yet that is typical of warfare that we've seen in the last century, where people who've got their treasures but no food sell their family heirlooms, send, sell anything they possibly can just to eat, just to survive. And that's what it was like. This is no poetic license here. This is a reflection of what actually happened at the fall of Jerusalem. There was no food left. They'd been besieged for 18 months nearly. And they were desperate for food, starving. And so they search and groan desperately to survive. You can imagine the interviewer asking, as they're putting together this news report, what happened? And now Jerusalem begins to speak at length at the end of verse 11. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look and see. Notice how Jerusalem is addressing both God and the passers-by, whoever they may be, figuratively picture language. Look, God, pay attention to what's happened here as though God doesn't know, as though God was not involved or God is absent. And look to the passers-by to note what has happened here. Verse 12 at the end almost sounds as though it's blaming God. In one sense it is, rightly, because God did this through the Babylonians. So if there's any sorrow like my sorrow which is brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger... And then what follows are pictures, images, are poetic images to describe the destruction of Jerusalem. 
The beginning of verse 3, like a fire. Maybe not literally, maybe this is the poetic language. The end of verse 13, like a net from which nobody can escape. In verse 14, the transgressions were bound into a yoke and fastened together and set upon my neck. That is like a a prison type uh, imagery, a burden of slavery. In verse 15, it pictures a wine press. In ancient times, you would have a big flat rock and you would stand or roll another rock on the grapes. It would be at a slant and the juice from the grapes would slowly run down into a channel and be collected to, in the end, make wine. It's also a picture of punishment. Uh, The treading out of the wine press is an image picked up, of course, in the book of Revelation as well for final judgment. And in the great battle hymn of the Republic pictures up the same image about treading out the grapes of wrath. So it is here, in effect, that Jerusalem has been sort of squashed and all its life has been drained away in the wine press image of verse 15. And so in verse 16, for these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. No one to comfort, no one to comfort, no one to comfort. So the narrator himself now, it seems, speaks again in verse 17. That Zion again stretches out her hands as though looking desperately for a hand to hold in comfort. But there was none to comfort her. The Lord had commanded against Jacob, uh, a name for Judah and Israel, that his neighbors should be his foes. It's as though the Lord had said to everyone else, don't comfort Judah in their death. And Jerusalem has become in their sight a filthy thing. How painful this is. How awful this is, in a sense, to engage with and feel. This is what happens when God becomes the enemy. It's not because God is treacherous or unreliable or fickle. He hasn't become the enemy because he keeps switching sides. God has become their enemy because they have become his. They've turned away from him because of their ongoing persistent rebellion and idolatry and immorality for decade after decade after decade. The Old Testament story shows us that. From the times of Moses all the way through the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And now comes the climactic judgment. Finally, his patience runs out. God is their enemy because they turned against him. But it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, for God is a consuming fire and a jealous God. And all of this is God's directive. God is the subject, God's the one who's destroyed Jerusalem because of their sin. And Jerusalem acknowledges that. Again in verse 18, the Lord is in the right, for I've rebelled against his word. But here, you people, see my suffering. My young women, my young men have gone into captivity. So here is the dilemma in a sense that God is the one who's brought the suffering. Who in a sense can they cry to for help? Who can they cry to for comfort when God is their enemy? See, knowing you're in the wrong does not relieve the grief. And chapter 1 finishes with more heart-wrenching crying. Again, they call out to people at the end of verse 18 to hear and see and listen to what has happened. In verse 20 again, uh, and same in verse 19. In verse 20, look, appealing now to God again. So notice how Jerusalem keeps switching. 
to the passers-by, the other people. Then it turns to God. It turns to the passers-by as though it's desperately trying to find someone who will comfort them and ease their grief. But as verse 21 begins, yet again it says, there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies had heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. They're laughing. They're rejoicing at the fall of Jerusalem. And so the chapter ends. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me. But even Babylon and Babylon's friends who have defeated and now mock and ridicule Jerusalem, who've been actually used by God to do that, now in the grief of Jerusalem, crying out that God will bring righteous punishment against them as well. Jerusalem knows it's in the wrong, but that doesn't make its enemies in the right. Well, as I said, this is a painful chapter, painful book to read, but it's a particular grief. It's not an answer to all the suffering or all bereavement that we will face. Here is a grief that comes because of persistent, ongoing sin. Sin that has lasted for decades. Sin that should have been understood. The people should have understood what they were doing wrong, but never did. Never turned back to God. And after numerous delays of mercy, God has now finally, decisively acted The grief that's being expressed here is not simply for us to enter into. The grief that's being expressed here is to warn us, even emotionally to warn us, not to flirt with sin. Not to be blind to sin like Judah and Israel had been for centuries. To heed the warnings of God in Scripture. The fall of Jerusalem in one sense is nothing compared to the final day of the Lord's return when he will judge the living and the dead. Jesus himself echoes that in what we heard a little bit of in the second Bible reading today when Jesus warns about the future destruction of Jerusalem which happened again in 70 AD by the Romans this time. This chapter and this book are warning us about how grief will mean, or grief at sin, will mean no one to comfort you. There'll be no one in hell to hold your hand for those who face the judgment of God on the final day. He's saying to us, don't risk it. Live with regard to the future. Live heeding God's word. For while this is awful, This is terrible. Hell is worse. And we are warned and warned by Jesus, no less, about the judgment that he will bring on the final day. And yet, as we'll see in the center of this book in two weeks to come, this is not a book that is hopeless, without hope. For even in the heart of this book, this book of what seems to be unremitting grief and sorrow, those who grieve can still say that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God will bring comfort. God will bring relief. Not because it's deserved, but because he's a gracious God. In the New Testament, we see the fulfillment of that comfort that God will bring. And yet we see again the pattern of lamentations continue. For in the New Testament we see again 
the, the temple of God, the place where God meets his people abandoned, mocked, destroyed, forsaken, betrayed, alone, with no one to comfort, not her, but him. For Jerusalem, the living temple, is Jesus, no less. And so when we come to the cross, we find the echoes of this book again. Grief, betrayal, abandonment, because of our sin, not his. But at the same time, in the midst of that grief, we find the comfort of hope for the forgiveness of sins in Christ. We'll see more of that as this book unfolds in the weeks to come. But it's important that we don't just leave ourselves thinking that this is hopeless. But heed the warnings. Heed these graphic, emotional, heart-wrenching warnings. Don't be like ancient Israel. Don't be persistent in sin. For this grief and this desolation is nothing compared to what the final day will bring for those who do not follow the living God. Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you that in the midst of grief against sin, you offer us comfort, hope, and salvation through your Son, your abandoned, betrayed, forsaken, mocked, and lonely Son, who hung on the cross shamed, naked, with our guilt and with our sin, so that our tears may turn to joy. Amen.